really no. hard part was finding enough rhubarb at a single store to make a bundle because they don't, they don't really sell it like they do celery. Like you can, <laughs> I mean, I'll try it sometimes. What? Well, what I'll do sometime is I'll get, I have some friends who grow rhubarb in their gardens and I'll just get a whole bundle of them. Anyone who grows it has an unlimited supply. Yeah, I have to care. imagine that it comes in stocks like celery. So a really tight bundle like that might be different, but I don't know. If you're not careful, rhubarb kind of goes rogue and grows massive. Yeah, the not problem like with the shop rhubarb. The problem really? with growing rhubarb in your garden isn't like growing rhubarb, it's not growing rhubarb. So you're saying I could have an unlimited supply of cutting medium. Of authentic historical cutting medium. Hmm. All right. Uh, yeah, so uh, I do, I'm curious now if you let it grow too much, does it get uh, a form that it's harder to cut? It's I think it gets woody if you leave it too long as well. It was probably also more fibrous back then before like 400 years of selective breeding for edibility. That's a good point. That's, that's true. Um, All right, so this could be a complicated project to try and recreate historical rhubarb. Nothing simple if you care. Is there like wild? Is there like wild rhubarb out there? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. That might be similar. Yeah, that'd be a worthwhile yeah. job. Cool. Okay, yeah. so new yeah. project. <laughs> a podcast on rhubarb. All right. Says there is wild rhubarb. Perfect. Okay, let's. Should we start the episode? Yeah, probably. <laughs> okay. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take a deeper look at early Lishenhauer longsword sources. I'm Michael Smoridge, and joining me today are Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. What's everybody been up to in the last week? <laughs> I'm just astonished that I got through that. <laughs> What's everybody been up to in the last week? Johanna? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I've been doing a little bit of research on you would left um, because I stumbled over the sentence in his um, 1460s um, work. Um, it says, He had an end of this Judenkunst, den man nennt den Leben. And reading it, it kind of gives the impression as if Levin um, is not the first name at all, but a nickname. So when I'm reading it, it sounds like here ends the art of the Jew who is called the lion. So I definitely translate it as the lion there. Um, but then I did another bit of research and I found out that calling or, or um, Leva <laughs> was a pretty common first name for Jews at all. Um, so mm, I'm not okay. So, I'm not so cleverer the, than I was before, but <laughs> at least I did so, some research. <laughs> so does Lou or Lev, uh, or however it should be pronounced, does it mean kind of like Leo would be a name in English? So meaning lion? Yes, I think so. I think so. So the text I found said that there were ver um, various different ways of spelling uh, lever and names like um, Leo or, uh, or Leon, which is a pretty common name in Germany even now, um, is all derived from the name lever, which was apparently pretty common for Jewish people in, yeah, like the 15th or 16th century. 
Levi is a Pretty biblical cool. name, so it's not surprising. It's all over the Old Testament. I mean, Levi, Levi. was one of the twelve tribes. Hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought I had something for English. I don't know how they would be spelled in German. Is that Levi as in the genes? Uh, I imagine it's related. Yes, but no. <laughs> same spelling. So are this, is, that, is that related to the fencing source too, then? The genes? I didn't catch that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I assume that, it, that a good dude named Levi started the genes company. Yeah. Not, not just any Jewish person. You'd love yeah. started the genes company. Oh. Okay, right. oh, well, <laughs> someone named Levi Strauss. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, cool. I thought I thought because they used an article, so they said um Din Manen Dean Levin, so um who is called the Lion or the Lever. I thought because they used the article that it's meant as a nickname, but then I thought that even when I'm talking in my dialect and I'm um telling someone my name, I say um <laughs> Ich bin die Joey, so I don't say um, I am Joey. I say basically I am the Joey. So we use articles in our dialect when um, telling someone our names. So it might still just be a first name. Hmm. So uh, another um, researcher I know named Rebecca Garber pointed out that in the early modern or early New High German, it was not common to capitalize Juden to refer to Jews. Um, that comes later. So she suspected that Juden was actually a proper surname for whoever this was. So the man that, whose last name was Juden. Um, yes. And because it was a, also a non-Jewish surname that just by coincidence but had the same spelling. So, wow. but yeah, the fact that Juden wouldn't be capitalized in the 15th century is interesting. I mean, I guess anything could be capitalized, but it wasn't the uh, custom yet. Cool. Okay. Um, sweet. Uh, Michael, what have you been up to in the last week? Uh, so we just did a huge headache-inducing for Christian Trust Claire update to the wiki, and that inspired me to do some waking hour design. So I've piloted a new page structure in which all of the table columns on the sometimes intimidating Wittenauer comparison tables will be able to be hidden and revealed by pressing buttons. So you can choose exactly which view you want in terms of translations and transcriptions. And the big reason for this would be we could now, if we institute this across the board, which will take like a couple of years probably at the rate I work on things, we could have more than one translation for a given text without cluttering up the screen with even more columns. So allow us to expand offerings that way and moving lots of things forward in that um, along those lines. And I made some other tweaks to the wiki that aren't worth explaining, but it's a shiny new system that's much uh, faster than it used to be as well. Sweet. Thank you very much. Uh, Stephen, what have you been up to in the last week? I finalized stuff, well, mostly finalized stuff on my book. I have, I'm now a button click away from it being released. I have proofs ordered that are going to be here next Tuesday. And I'll just make some final tweaks if I want to from that. So by the time this is, by the time this episode is out, it should be out. So that's it. Tweet. Uh, T, have you been up to much? 
Um, I've just been fixing some gear, reselling the Velcro on my jackets, buying new feathers, that sort of thing. Uh, ah, what, what new feathers? I bought okay, a couple good. of uh, models from Bloss uh, in Poland. Uh, super small, super light, super flexible feathers, um, which are for... I'm going to use them for one fencing in my gear and then also for teaching uh, one-to-one lessons um, where I want to be able cool. to take a lot of thrust or something without any discomfort at all. So we're not moving so, forward with the swing concept? I mean, maybe we will be, but I need to, I'm waiting for them to actually do anything first, produce a new swing. If that comes out, cool. then I'll stick an epi blade on the end of it and see how that goes. <laughs> cool. Um, Research-wise, I haven't been up to much in the last week, which should shock no one. I did, however, get out to a sort of official sanctioned club fencing for the first time since lockdown began here. And do you know what I did afterwards? I dumped all my sweaty gear in a bag, put it in the back of the van, and ignored it for two days. <laughs> so so that... no change from normal there. <laughs> no change from normal, mm-hmm. but uh, that's, that's my job for the rest of the Saturday morning is going to be sorting out that pile of stank. Yeah, that'll come out smelling exactly the same, I bet. <laughs> for most right. people. So the plan for today's episode is to look at lines uh, 36 and 37 of the Zettel. Which cover the the four Plosen is the German. And before we dive in a little bit, Steve, you translate Plosen is normally what's it normally translated as? The four openings. openings. And you gave it a translation of exposure. Is that something that's, that you've stuck with? I really that's, like that. uh, that's Michael, I think. Yeah, that's I, me. I, I do openings. You do openings. So, expo, expo, oh, uh, Blosse is interesting if, if you want to talk about that before we start here, because it doesn't. So, we say opening, which I think we get from modern fencing. Is that true, T? Or my. Uh, I don't know. My coach doesn't really bother with theory. Uh, all right. But from somewhere, we get this notion of openings. Um, and that's, that's something that I guess you could interpret Blosse as. Uh, but I think we do it mostly by tradition at this point. What the word actually means is like nudity or nakedness. And in fact, in Latin, Paulus Hector Meyer renders it as nuditatum or nuditati. Uh, so it's not necessary. It's not really a metaphorical opening in, in the way he describes it, or maybe it is a metaphorical opening. But I feel like exposure captures the usage better in terms of it's the place where you are exposed by your fencing. However, I've been sort of vacillating on that because it's also used in the armored gloss, where in that case, it is literally describing the gaps in the armor, not just the gaps in your defense, as it were. So in that, in armor, maybe opening does make more sense. But See, the- I, I was just thinking, and I was thinking the opposite of that. I feel like exposure really? would make more sense in armor, because without armor, your entire you're body naked. is exposed. Yeah. So I feel like opening would make more sense for like unarmored, because you're already fully exposed. So what are you going to aim for? You're going to aim for the openings. But I don't know. But so for exposure, I just I, I chose for my translations mostly because it, it has sort of a dual meaning in English that I think is present in German as well, of both sort of actual nakedness that's implied by Blosfecht and, and also the gaps in your defending yourself. Um, so in English, you, you know, someone who is 
convicted of indecent exposure is doing a certain thing. But also, if you expose yourself in your fencing, we know what that means. So I like the fact that it captures both senses, which I think German speakers are going to hear every time they use the word. Sweet. Um, Joey is our resident German speaker. Have you got anything to add? I'm, I just um, inhaled some of my coffee and I'm still trying not to die. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I agree that so I, I was just thinking about it with my, uh, what Michael said, and it's true that it's got some sort of um, nakedness as an implication. Um, I was just trying to look up the word in some uh, Middle High German dictionaries, but I've not found anything so far. Okay, we can we can come back to it. Um, would you be kind enough to read? Uh, lines 36 and 37 in the German, though. Ja. <clears throat> Die vier bloßen. Vier bloßen wisse, reme, so schlechst du gewisse, an alle fahr, an zweifel, wie er gebar. Thank you very much. Uh, Steve, could you give us how Harry translates that? Four openings know to truly guide your blow, without fear or doubt, for what he'll bring about. Thank you very much. So, the a fencer who you're fencing against is divided into four four exposures, four openings, four quadrants, and that's what you aim for. Does the does the gloss expand on this very much? Well, you could read the gloss. I could read the gloss when I get it open. Okay, uh, reading here's, the gloss is overrated. Here's the. Here's the composite gloss um, put to, assembled by Mike Chidester. Gloss, yeah. remember the four exposures on the man towards which you shall always fence. Whoever wishes to be a master of the sword, he shall precisely observe how his opponent uncovers himself and shall know how to seek the four exposures with art. Thus, when you approach him with your onset, if you want to fence correctly and wisely, you shall not hew in towards his sword, but rather you shall aim for the four exposures. The first exposure on the right side of the upper half, above the girdle of the man, and the second on the left. The other two exposures are the right and left side of the lower half, below the girdle. Now, there are two drivings whence one shall artfully seek the exposures without danger. First, one shall seek from the onset with shooting the long point in and with pursuing. Secondly when one has bound the other on the sword, one shall seek the, with the eight windings. Understand it like this. When you come towards him with your onset, do not hew towards his sword, but take the same exposures before without any fear, with a hew or with a stab to whichever you may best come on, and regard not what he drives or fences against you with his plays. Therewith, you constrain him so that he must displace you, and when he has displaced, then work in with the displacement with the winding on his sword yet towards the nearest exposure, and the same always at the exposures of the body, and fence not towards the sword. As in the play which says, Set on four extents, learn to remain thereon you want to end, if you want to end. If you fence wisely and make attacks which are excellent, and with those do not allow him to come to his plays. Woo That was long. That is a lot in the grass. So this is, in my opinion, if I had to pick a single section of the entire gloss that um, summarizes everything and that frames all of Lichtenauer, this is the section. Okay, so this is very important. Is built on this section. 
Only the Danzig version, though, right? Uh, also Ringek to an extent. So actually, Nikolaus, I think, provides some clarity. Oh, um, does he use the... Uh, the wording is not significantly different, but somehow it sort of lines up a little bit better to me. Okay, so, so it's worth saying that I was reading a, a composite and the four different glosses yeah, so, so are really quite different here, aren't they? Well, yeah, the, if you look at the, the, the big document... Stuff, a different subset of it. Pardon? Mostly they all have the same stuff, just a different subset of it. And and rearranged. So it, yeah, like, Lev, Lev moves some things around compared to Ringek and Danzig. It, it's interesting. And, and one of the key phrases is present in a shortened form in Ringek and only present in long form in Danzig. So this is this is the reason why I can't completely throw away Danzig as a source, mostly this section. <laughs> if you read the Ringek and you haven't read the Danzig, then you would probably just gloss over that part. It just seems uh -huh. like a list of things. Like You can use knock rise and you can use shooting in, or you can use other things to attack. Right, I'm pretty sure I've done exactly that in the past when I was reading Ringek. Yeah. Not even noticed. Right, but Danzig kind of um, takes that and turns it into um, an entire paradigm of how you should be fencing. Well, let's take a step back. Uh, how about we do the openings themselves first so we know what we're talking about and sure. then get into the deeper theory. Okay, so four, four, four openings, four exposures, four targets. Up and down, they're divided by the girdle. And am I right in thinking that the girdle's your your natural waist around That's the belly button? That's a complicated type? question. Well, the word that word just means belt in German. It's just the German word for belt, isn't it, Johanna? Yeah, yeah, it is. So it's just what right. we'd call belt. Yeah. So I don't really. Yeah, I don't. I don't really understand the translation of it as girdle. I always prefer belt as the translation. And everybody knows what a belt is and what is below and above it. Well, they do. So but you know how to girdle time, your loins. At the same time, 20th, 21st century people wear their belts four to six inches lower than 15th century people would. So we don't. We may not actually know what's above and below it. Eh, that's I would fair. think of it as sort of maybe just below your rib cage is where we would expect the belt to be. Uh, yeah. Like you said, the belly button area, which means that your entire hip area is below the belt. Um, and groin, so are so on, but there's not a lot above your belt, below your arms. And in fact, I think there's there's relatively few attack to below the hips. There's some like there's some winding stabs into the thigh, and there's yeah. that MS two to no, MS three two two seven A. Uh, kind of like free hue to the leg is mentioned, but I think that's the, the main one, isn't it? There's very few attacks described to the lower opening in any way at all, however you describe it. Uh, so, Yeah, and, and when they do, like, they, they don't really strictly adhere to this, you know, belt slash girdle slash whatever. They just kind of say, like, you know, if he's going, if he's going low on you. Yeah. Um, just quickly, the, the German word that gets translated as girdle is girdle. So I think that that's why it gets translated as girdle all the time, because it's an easy, mm. easy it's read. It's an easy cognate. Right. But... Yeah, because it's a cognate. Cognate but, are the yeah. best. Well, not always. 
because <laughs> false cognition is better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so we've got the body divided into top half and bottom half, and then left and right. Now, how does it divide? Whereabouts does it divide left and right? It doesn't specify at all. Is the short answer. <laughs> okay. So if I was going to come up with a wild theory and say, okay, so it's the left and the right side of his blade rather than anything absolute on the body, is there any kind of argument that we made for or against that? Or is it just ambiguous? It's yeah. ambiguous, but you would be inserting a reference to the sword which isn't otherwise present in the section. So there's no evidence strictly against it, but there's also, you have to add, if the other one was framed also in reference to the sword, like in reference to the sword belt or a position of the hilt or something, then it would be more reasonable to split left and right based on the um, sword itself. Uh, yeah. And also you have cases where, one of the very few cases where you're told to target an opening based on its left or right sideness, sidedness was in the, uh, the creek that we discussed last episode. And there it wasn't really implied based on the side of your sword. It was quite clear that you were changing sides of the body at points in that play. Cool. So I think it's much more reasonable to say they're the two sides of the body. Yep, and that fits with uh, Joachim Meyer's nice diagrams later on, doesn't it? Maybe I haven't looked at Joachim Meyer's nice diagrams. I've looked yeah. at the pictures, come on. He, he, he draws a line right down the middle of a person. Yeah. And Actually, sorry, I have looked at the pictures when I went through the manuscript for Michael. But I didn't pay attention to them, I just looked for notations. Well, you've definitely, everybody's seen that picture of, like, the guy with the lines, and then on his head he has lines, too. Yeah, I know, that's true. And I think his sword has lines on it, too. So that's an interesting thing, is that Joachim Meyer specifies that the body has openings, but the head also has openings. And he'll tell you to strike to specific parts of the head, which is present as instructions in the, in the earlier text, but I don't think is systematized necessarily that way. Where he says, you know, the right and left sides are called the ears, and the lower openings are called the jaw, and yeah, and he he breaks up. I think he in his rapier he even has a diagram where the leg has its own openings. If you're going to target the leading leg, nice. Yeah, they definitely mention different targets on the face throughout, mm -hmm. or like on the head in RDL, like through the mouth. So I think the thing I was wanting to bring up next, anyway, is that. We have these four openings as targets, but they're not really described as targets to attack in very many of the Stuck. It's much more common to see a description of a specific location like the face or the chest or a specific location on the head or a target like the over the hand or the arm or something uh, than it is to see something described as attacking one of the four, the four exposures. Yeah, you're, you're very seldom told to cut with your... Uh, no. To the upper right opening. And this is something that we can um, bring up. We'll, we'll come up again in the Anzets and if nowhere else, but there's also you know, places that are better or worse to plant your sword on someone that line up roughly with the four openings. Yeah. And those being the shoulder sockets and sort of the hip joints. Or you can, you can push someone from there where you can't push them a lot of other places. Yeah, but I uh, I find it really interesting that we're given these things as the four things you target, and then very few of the shtuk actually describe them as things to target. Yeah, it's much more common to see a description of thrust at the chest or cut at the cut at the head or something than it is to see a description of attacking specifically one of the one of the four openings. Well, yeah, when when you see it mentioned, usually it's like 
um, do this attack to the upper openings or do this attack to the lower openings. And then, you know, if it's a cut, they'll say, like, you know, hew him to the right side to his head or something. Uh, I'd also like to take a little bit of a, a tactical strategic look here, which is that this, the gloss of this section kind of like really emphasizes that you're not attacking to the sword, you're attacking to the body, which, you know, is like generally quite good advice when you're teaching a beginner, right? But then there have been more dogmatic interpretations of this that kind of are at odds with when you, the sources then go and talk about, say, the crimp power being used as a beat to the blade, which is definitely attacking the blade and not, um, well, so not the person. I For think sure. the, I have a, the kind of one of the things I was going to bring up anyway, so I guess we'll start it here, is that I, to a degree, you have these three ways you're told to do this, right? You're told to do it with, to attack the four openings with shooting in the point, with Nakarizen Pursuit and with Winding on the Sword. Um, and I largely split things like the... I mostly split those between things you do before your opponent and things you do after them or when chasing them. So the Nakarizen and the Shooting In are things which you'll do if you're initiating the action, um, either because they're staying and you can shoot in, or they're moving in a silly way and you can exploit it by going directly to the opening. Whereas if they've come for you, you have to work on their blade and then wind on the blade to the opening. So you like crimp on the blade and then wind the point in or something. Right. So if we have... take T's definition of four and nach, then what's being described here specifically would be four the seeking yeah. the openings, right? Yeah, yeah. Although a lot of the and especially when you're seeking the openings in the knock, a lot of the time, a lot more of the time, you're going to be winding in the knock than winding in the bore. So you're like, you start, the, you know, they start first, and you might crimp their blade or something because you can't take an opening safely. And then the moment you've yeah. done that, you then take the opening um, by winding on the sword. And I, I think that for me, a little bit of the, the stumbling point for this section is. Um, it's interpretations where people go, okay, so the text says that you just keep attacking and they have to defend. Say, so if you just twerk Opta to the four openings, then you're not going to get hit. Which is not true. Lead, it leads to not recognizing when, uh, when you, you've attacked and been parried and you've, you've lost, uh, lost control of the situation. Or, or somebody who'll say, okay, well, I've been attacked, I've parried. Now I'm going to attack back, and uh, there are hits landing in both directions. Well, all you have to do is imagine both people having that mindset at the same time when they're fighting each other to yeah. see how that wouldn't work. Yes, and when everybody's reading the same book telling you to be aggressive. So this is this is kind of touching upon the next section now. Okay. I don't think we were... Well, I personally wasn't done with the knock rising and shooting in. Okay, let's go that, back to that then. <laughs> with that idea, because that's, I think, kind of a big idea um, in this section. So, right. the pursuit and the shooting in of the long point are, uh, as T was saying, uh, it, it mentions to do them. And this is kind of also another... I, I think this is probably one of the only places where it kind of says like do this in the Zufechten and do that in the in the Krieg 
So it's kind of acknowledging different, you know, doing different things in, at different times. Um, another thing that I'm kind of just noticing now is I feel like it's kind of talking about distance too. So um, you have the shooting in of the long point, which if if you're if you're at like a longer distance, you can stab from a longer distance than you can than you can hew, then you can cut somebody. So if you're at that longer dif distance, you can shoot in the long point and attack with a stab. Or um, if you're using pursuit, then you're taking advantage of either like you know a preparatory action that your opponent is doing or some kind of thing that they're doing. So they are probably closing the distance when they do that. So when you're attacking with Nakhizen, then you're more free to use like a hue or a stab. But if you're just attacking, like if you if you just think you have good timing and and you're attacking, then you're probably attacking with a stab. Yeah. Whereas by contrast, when you're winding, a winding is described both before and after this as a shortened action. It's happening off the sword. So one of these. Uh, glosses says, you know, once somebody's bound the other person on the sword. Um, but I think really one of the more likely circumstances where winding is going to be coming in here is when they've attacked and you've bound them on the sword. So they begin the action uh, with a cut towards you or something. And by doing so, they close the distance somewhat. Generally speaking, the person who acts first gets to pick when the action happens, and the person who acts second gets to pick the distance that the action happens at. So if they cut first or thrust first, you can bind on their sword and make the distance such that your winding is now the appropriate continuation action. You have the appropriate space and time to work it. Right. Yeah, It's a, so the text says um, when one has bound the other to the sword, so it doesn't really specify who's binding on whom. Either way is, is valid. Yeah, and winding is inherently shortens you, as they say in the uh, shield house section. So you probably wouldn't want to be doing them in the two fechten unless you're preparing something else. You just shorten your arms and sprint at them, right? Excuse me? You just like hold your arms really short and sprint at them, right? It works great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that always works. Well, it might actually, depending who it's, you're fighting. But it's go a surprisingly ahead, high percentage touch. <laughs> the idea that there's three distances being discussed here is something that I just noticed very recently. Um, but I completely agree. Um, and the the whole the way I, you can also break it down is that if you're acting offensively against an opponent who's just waiting for you, then shooting the long point is the answer that's available. Um, whereas an opponent who is approaching you in any way, or distance is being closed, maybe you're both cautiously approaching, then at that point, shooting the long point is no longer really available. And so Nakhreisen is the way in which you exploit the situation. And that gets into especially the two Nakhreisens that Ringek teaches, and the others mentioned without really covering the first one, um, of attacking into your opponent's preparation and attacking into your opponent's recovery, as I think the Italians describe it. But also there's other ways you can Nakhreis, aren't there? Steve, I know you've done a, a bit of gathering of random other instances where the term is used. Yeah, so generally it's... so. You have the main instance, which is the other person cuts. I personally think that's a provocational cut that the other person's doing. 
Um, or it could just be someone who sucks at fencing and is cutting out of range and going all the way down to their foot. And then <laughs> there's... We find that applied as uh, somebody who's attempting a stop cut on your advance. Oh, yeah, that could be it too. I mean, I don't want to like downplay that that uh, like either of those interpretations because I've certainly seen people do those in our modern fencing game. But anyway, there's... So another case is when somebody attempts to do a Deutschwechseln or a change through, uh, disengage while you still have your point online and you shoot in the point while they're doing it, that's uh, Nachheisen. And other cases are from a bind. So when somebody is withdrawing um, out of a bind and I guess stepping backwards and you chase them in with the point, that's Nachheisen. Or when somebody is trying to do um, a Zuken or like a a different type of cut around from the bind that, and you chase them in with either the point or the edge. That's not Chrysler. So basically, my my idea for it is, anytime somebody's doing a preparatory action that doesn't involve blade contact, because we have different responses for beats that are named, I, I consider that to be not Chrysler or or a uh, retreat. So the the other interesting thing is when you look at things like the the fear of Zetson, um, in which you're openly attacking your opponent's guard is the way it's presented in the glosses. I think all of those could also be described as either a shooting at the long point or a, a Nachreisen. And certainly in Yud Lev, his description of the Tverhau against Pontag is textbook first Nachreisen according to Ringek. Um, and the way many people execute the Scheidelhau is certainly a second Nachreisen where you're attacking after your opponent is moving into that guard, which I'm not sure I agree with, but we'll get there when we get there. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly ways they're applied that can be not Grison, and I think that that is sort of the missing piece to some interpretations of how they fit into the art, is specifically exploiting your opponent's movements that aren't directly atta attacking you. I think the only the only one that's a problem is the Krumpau to Ox. Because, yeah, but nobody knows what that is. So yeah, I mean the way I do it, it's <laughs> it's kind of like a knock rising, but I'm looking forward to that episode. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know how I would describe the way I've been doing it. Yeah, uh, Scheidel how depending on which text you're reading and how you read it can also be seen as shooting in the long point. And Shielhow as well. Um, yeah, I, I oh yeah, Shielhow definitely is. I think it, unless you're unless you're reading Ringek where he cuts the shoulder. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he still. Cut, he, no, no, no. He doesn't cut the shoulder versus flug. Oh. Yeah, okay. he still shoots in the point against flug and against long point. Okay, then he's right. Yeah. He's okay. But yeah, so I, I think I think it's not unreasonable to expect any time that you're acting offensively against your opponent that it fits into one of these paradigms, except maybe the Krimpau, which, in my opinion, is the text that breaks the rules and and <laughs> refuses to follow them. Um, but elsewhere, elsewhere in the glass, it seems like these. This is the setup that's assumed for all these techniques: is either not Grison or shooting the point, or they're cool. acting first, or some. Or some they're coming into you. And the question I have is: what, what all the places where you're told to offer an opening to your opponent and then exploit their attack would we call that not Grison or not? That's a interesting question we can think about in like ten episodes. I would say no. <laughs> Like like the Krimpau or the Abzetsin and so on. I would also say no. When you when you're in um, Shrankhut and you're giving them the opening, 
And then they attack and you counter them, yeah. Yeah, I would not personally consider that not Kryson. Hmm. I would consider that kind of the opposite of not Kryson, actually. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like <laughs> you're taking advantage of your opponent doing poor not Kryson. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> also, I think you should split out the Krumpau and the Absetzen as working differently in that case as well, because of the way they're described. Yeah, and I think there may be other places where you do it too. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, this is this is beginning to sound like a uh, arguing about categories, which yeah, is. So I want to bring up Absetzen very quickly, actually, because Absetzen okay, is cool. a great example of the uh, the third ex the third option here of beginning by getting a bind and winding on the sword. Because the way Absetson is described is that you give you offer an opening, they attack, and you wind on their sword and bring your point in. Like that's a it's a very clear example of this third category of item. This third way of like targeting the openings, winding on the sword. Sure. Huh. Do you the different glosses here have uh kind of like strong different in concept, or is it just how it's expressed? So for example, Yudlev, which is the source that I work from most. This 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 thing that we're talking about, this thing that we're talking about is not even in Yudlev at all. I know. And I that's love actually it. that that's something else I wanted to bring up is because, I mean, I personally and I think you guys also too have been considering that maybe Yudlev has purposefully left stuff out. Do we think that there's a purpose that he might have left this part out? Because he's basically just there's four targets, attack yeah. them, and keep up the keep up the attacks so that they can't do what they want to. Right. Maybe that's too much... Maybe that section adds too much decision-making for uh, for Lev's liking. I mean, so that the, he, he does include the advice very early on in his section before the description of the four openings, right, where he says that you should do not hew to the sword, but always aim for the four exposures, the four openings. Right. Um, so maybe he is. Maybe he just doesn't feel the need to explain what that means, or he assumes that you'll figure that out yourself. Um, whereas we could look at the text we're discussing as an explicit description of what it means to do that thing that he's telling you to do. So yeah. he he doesn't necessarily disagree, even though he doesn't have that level of detail. He also, yeah. uh, when we come to the onsets, and he has way more detail than the other glosses as far as specifying exactly what opening you should aim for when he does whatever action. So maybe no, he kind of just uh, shifted. And it was it was surprising to us modern readers, wasn't it? Well, so that's interesting because the Anzetan is invoked in this section, even though it's not described. It's not invoked in Lev, though. It's yeah, invoked it's in Ringek and um, Nikolaus. And... And Danzig. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. I don't think it's invoked in Ringek. Are you mixing up your columns? Uh, yeah, oh, it's I not know. in Ringek. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Danzig and, and, um, and Nicholas say at the end that you'll always aim at the, upon, at the openings of the man and fence not to the sword, as in the technique that says set upon to four ends, etc. So he's hmm. saying, we can look to the Anzetsin as an example of what he's describing here. Which is interesting because it doesn't quite line up with what's being described here, although it doesn't not line up. But it's 
you could argue that maybe it's a shooting at the long point that also operates by principles of not Christen, if you want to just completely start mixing your sources up. Or I, others have argued that Anzatsin is Ringex first not Christen, but described differently, which I don't think it is. Yeah, that, I'd this say is definitely a topic for uh, future <laughs> like five episodes. But I want to talk about it right now. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll save it. I'll, I'll save my thought, thought for the Anzetsun, but I do have thoughts on that. But I think uh, okay. have a really big argument when we get to that. So we should save some of that argument. Shall we talk about Mayor's head exposures and cutting to the jaw? And then um, wrap up? I'd like to talk a bit about preventing people coming to blows. Um, and that See, phrase. that's the next episode. No, that's in here. Yeah, uh, it does have constraining it, maybe, do, but I don't do not care regard about what he fences against you. We got to talk about that. <clears throat> oh yeah, cool. So, so what that's saying is that you should uh, not react to your opponent. You should just uh, just fence blindly with a preset pattern. Yep, just close your eyes and attack. That's what it means. Yes, um, but more seriously, uh, it's an interesting little section um, because it, in some ways, goes against the stuff that we'll see later about Fulin. Um, and very much working with regard for what's going on and what opening becomes available. Well, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily incongruent with Ulan. I don't think it is either, but I think it's incongruent on a kind of surface level, if you're not thinking about it carefully. Yeah, right, on a surface level, but, you know, that's, yeah. I think it's, it's pretty good fencing advice to say that if you're going to try to uh, to dominate an exchange and to force your opponent on the back foot, then you shouldn't worry too much about uh, about what they're doing. I think that's just generally good advice, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree with that. This actually is... So my background is kendo. And when I was first getting into the sources, this is one of the lines that kind of drew me in and like... I, I uh, identified a lot with this line because that's pretty much like one of the main things that we're taught in, in kendo is like when you decide to attack. Now you're not you're you're not throwing random attacks willy nilly. You're carefully deciding when you should attack based on like timing and you know all that you know stuff. But when you decide to attack, you have to commit fully to it and. If you don't commit fully to it, then you'll start hesitating, and it'll slow you down and like make you apprehensive, and your opponent will like have time to react and counter you, and like all this bad stuff is going to happen. Isn't, isn't there part of the game where if you the judges don't think you're fully committed, they won't give you points? Yeah, well, kind of implicitly, because there, there's a lot of requirements for how you score, and um, when you put them all together, yeah, you're not going to score if you don't have a committed attack. So yeah, but even in longsword, even though you don't, it's not required to score. Um, I think the idea of it will help you score. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and then if you do get parried, then you figure out what to do from there. That's when the fuel one comes in. Yeah, but I think the and then I think the second part is basically that if you're, if they do binding or sword or whatever, what you want to be doing is not ignoring what they're doing but reading exactly what they are doing so that you can move to the opening that's becoming available every time. Like, there's four, we have four openings, a longsword can only cover one of them, maybe two at a stretch. So however they move, more openings are always becoming available. 
And so you aren't you don't want to chase their sword specifically, but you want to be aware of the way they're moving and the places that are becoming available as targets. And by constantly switching between those, you prevent them from ever being able to actually pause and commit to a developed attack back against you because they always have to be moving to by the time they're moving one area, the next attack is already developed. Right. I, I think there's an argument to be made that you can't effectively seek your opponent's openings if you're completely ignoring what they're doing because their actions are what create the openings and close them again. So if you're actually aiming, hunting their openings, then you're very cognizant of where their sword is leaving open. Where I mean, some in some cases, you want to be specifically attacking the place where their sword was and they just moved it away from. And some of those actions, I think that's how Christian Trosclair interprets all of the instructions about seeking the next or the nearest opening is that it's always the one that their sword just uh, vacated. Right, but you're not going to be you're not going to be deciding that while you're attacking. That's going to be something mm -hmm. that you've already decided by the time you attack. And then once you attack, you first can't... one, yes. Um, but yeah. what you have here is that it you know there's very much a. You know, as soon as they power you, you force them to power you, and as soon as they power you, search in the power with the winding to the nearest opening. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And always work through the four openings in such a way that they can never come back against you with. I was going to say that I think there's a difference between searching for the openings with a with a Twerhau helicopter and searching for the next opening by, say, attacking, being parried, and then doing a Duplirin or a Mutirin, which we'll get to in the next episode. <laughs> Um, yeah. as, as a relevant bind reaction to what's happened. Right, and I think that the, the, the partial resolution to questions of things like the Krumpo, where you are actually hitting their sword, or literally any parry, um, where you're specifically intercepting their sword, is that you are not, not seeking the openings, but your intent is to seek the openings with the winding, which is perfectly legitimate. You're just doing what you have to do to get there first. So it's not a prohibition on doing those actions so much as an acknowledgement that while you're doing those, you're not seeking the opening. So you should get back to seeking the opening again when you can. Yeah, that's very much the follow-on described to pretty much every parrying action in the glosses, turn the point in and chase the opening. Mm -hmm. Wind the point into the opening. Uh, you see that in the Except crew, the attack in. Or make attack in. But the attack is a response to them parrying you instead of you parrying them. Yeah. I want to add at this point that, I, that an interesting thing to think about with this section and the one that's following is the relationship to the general lesson that we talked about several episodes ago. Um, and you can, there's obvious parallels here um, as far as shooting the point, which was covered in his lessons, as far as seeking the opening and foreign knock and so on. But to, so I, th I think that when you look at the at manuscripts that record that settle without a gloss, um, they generally have subject headings. And the four openings, as well as the next four couplets that we're going to talk about, which are called countering the four openings, are never listed as part of the Zornhau in the subject headings. They have basically 20 sections, 21, which is the 17 Hauptstücke, and then the four openings and the Sprechfenster are the two things that aren't Hauptstücke that get their own separate headings. And I think that's significant because it's, it's sort of indicating that this is not part of this Zornhau-specific teaching but is actually part of the general lesson. And if we look at it, we can, or, you know, a sequel to general lesson, a second general lesson or whatever. If we general look at the, theory. yeah, if we look at the context, content of this section, it really is sort of finishing up the, the principles that were discussed in the general instruction, the Gemeinde Lehrer. 
So it's giving us sort of the rest of the conversation. And then there's a whole bunch of teachings that follow after that are going to reinforce this. But the this is, to me, and also, I mean, the Tornhow itself has a whole lot in common with the general lesson. And they're a very coherent body of teachings together. But this, is, again, is separate, I think, for that reason. And the Dupleon and Mutilin, which we're going to get to, are not Tornhow specific either. They're general teachings that you, for whatever reason, learn after you learn the Tornhow. Makes sense. Brilliant. Um, all right, let's just finish with five minutes if we've got that much to say about Mayer and these these head targets. I can read the passage on that. I have it up here. Yeah, go for it, Michael. So he says, although these four parts of the combatant would be enough according to the use of the German combatants in former days, who allowed thrusting as well as cutting, nonetheless, with us Germans nowadays, and especially in the handwork with the winding, attacks are mostly made and chiefly toward the head, I will also divide it, like the whole person in general, into the same four parts, namely into the upper around the scalp and the lower around the cheek and the neck, and that into the right and left parts. Since the ear is found on both sides, these are commonly called the right ear or the left ear. Um, so there you have it. So you have the, the top of the head versus the jaw and neck, or the cheek and neck, and then you have the left and right ears. This is actually something we see kind of in the settle, we'll probably run into this next uh, in the next episode. But you you definitely have plays like in Ring Act when he's talking about Duplirin as a target. He talks about cutting to the mouth or uh, onto the head with the same act as two different targeting guidances, which is kind yeah. of the same. Uh, just maybe it's a different cutting angle or a different height or whatever target, obviously. Um, but it's it's got this idea of there being different targets on his self. I think that is definitely represented by the. The Tverkow, I think, specifically mentions the ears as well. A lot. I might be, I might be lying about that. Spire. Uh, if you target to the head, to the mouth, for sure. I can't remember as much. Spire uh, is the only one that mentions the ear. All right. Not completely wrong, then. Just mostly. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, There's I'm also. Gonna be, I'm going to uh, be rude about it. Oh, no. Go ahead, Steve. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's. Yeah, so there's another. Uh, instance in Danzig where he targets um, under his face when countering the um, the slice to the neck with a or the sword to the neck with a uh, duplirin. So just another instance. All right, go ahead and be rude, Mike. Okay, I'm I'm going to be rude and talk over you, and then I'm going to be rude again about Maya and say, does this actually inform our fencing very much? Consider the head as these different targets. Or is it just like uh, a stated place where your sword could end up when you do the action? Like, I've never given it much thought before. I guess sometimes if you like doing wines and slices and stuff, then you will end up on different areas. But is it conceptually a useful idea? I mean, no, because Yudlev doesn't have it, but... Well, so the idea that you're targeting different parts of the head, it can be handy. One of them is different angles of attack will target different things. So if you're told to cut at the mouth, uh, then your cut's probably a lot more horizontal. Um, so it can give you some guidance about angle, uh, which can be useful. And then the second thing is that different um, uh, certain actions kind of work more naturally to certain spaces. For example, slices are almost always targeted towards the mouth or the neck or something. Uh, which is a, a more natural type of slicing, pressing action. 
I always hate reading about those slice, slice to the mouth. It just sounds nasty. I don't yeah. want that. I don't want that to happen to me either with a sharp sword or with a fetter. <laughs> oh yeah. Below the the face is kind of interesting. I, I forget the the word used there. Is it like visage? So it could mean eyes or. No, I think it's uh, Gesicht. I would have to look at the German for that. But, but isn't isn't Gesicht like? Yeah, Gesicht is the visage bit. in translation usually. Yeah, but it means face. If I recall yeah. correctly, yeah, the, the actual etymology is something also has to do with looking. So yeah. my best guess is that it's the thing that looks like you is the reason why it means face. So sometimes it means eyes, and sometimes it means the whole face. Well, later in like in the. Below in like cow. armored and and in like tin can and horsey, they say under mm -hmm. eyes a lot. Into Algen. In the in the in the Schiller, you're told to squint with the Gesicht, right? Which is interpreted yeah. as face. Yeah, Gesicht is is used as face nowadays, so it's our main word for face. Cool. All right. Has anybody got anything else to add, or shall we wrap up this episode? All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to this. This has been episode nine, I believe, of Fencing by the Book. Thank you very much to our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. And I've been your host, Michael Smallridge. Bye. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this, the ninth episode of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host. Uh, no, wait a second. That's not what I say. I say the podcast where we take a deeper look at the early Lichtenhauer fencing tradition. I'm your host, Michael Smorridge, and joining me today are Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Man, that was a bad introduction. It's all right. We can just cut it out of number. We can just cut it out of a previous episode. Yeah, since Steve started editing, I've stopped seeing so good. Can, can the right. open, this one just be Mike saying, man, that was a bad opening. <laughs> I wanted to, right. like, last time we had a big, like, episode that Mike, or a big part that Mike wanted to have cut out, and I wanted to move it to, like, the end of the episode after the uh, the outro beat, but that oh, was yeah. too hard, so I didn't do it. Oh. Maybe I'll do it this time. <laughs> Good plan. All right. I'm just going to start again. Okay. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take a deeper look at the early Lichtenhauer historical longsword sources. Joining me today, I'm Michael Smith. The fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing right, at I'm... you, but... <laughs> You're laughing with me. <laughs> Introduce yourself that way, that's fine. Yeah. Joining me today I've... is other Michael Smallridge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take three. Yeah.